This podcast is brought to you by the book, The Memoir Project, a thoroughly non-standardized text for writing in life, published by Grand Central Publishing. Recently updated and reissued in a new edition, it will teach you everything you need to know to write memoir. For more information, see the show notes or purchase wherever books are sold. Welcome to QWERTY. I'm Marion Roach-Smith. Each episode, I talk to writers from all genres to discover what makes a good read. And along the way, we discuss their writing process, discover their tips, and talk about what matters most to writers. So step away from the computer or typewriter for a bit and join us. Today, my guest is Ellen Abrams, a playwright whose work as a playwright came later in life. I've seen and heard her work and brought her along today to talk about many things, not the least of which is how to begin a writing career at any stage of life. Welcome, Ellen. Thank you, Marian. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to have you here. And I'm really delighted that you say in several of your online profiles that you came late to the work of writing plays. And and I just think that's terrific because age is such a tricky topic in art. And some people go to such great lengths not to discuss it. Perhaps, I don't know, thinking that maintaining some sort of timelessness keeps the work fresh. But my audience is writers, many of whom have had to, you know, like, oh, I don't know, work to afford <laughs> the writing they want to do later in life and who are now at some age getting to the work. So let's talk about that. Um, oh, there's a lot involved in that moment of turning toward our artist's self. So mm-hmm. fill us in. What were you doing before you became a playwright? Okay. Uh, for many years, I worked in trade publishing in New York City, and I wrote book jacket copy and advertisements, book ads, catalog copy, self-sheet copy, other kinds of copy. And I was pretty good at it, and I enjoyed it enormously. It got a little tedious after a while. At first, you love seeing your uh, the books you've written copy for in the bookstore, but you haven't really written the book, have you? <laughs> You've just written the selling copy. <laughs> so I would like take down Good the book. perspective. Like, <laughs> yes. You take down a book by Gay Talese. Oh, I wrote this. Really? Well, I wrote the copy <laughs> for it, not what's inside. And um, But uh, that got tedious after a bit. And I, because um, it's just, it, it was uh, mostly trade, uh, sorry, mostly uh, mass market. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, 20 or so books a month that I would work on. Yeah. And um, yeah. it just it gets tedious to keep writing and writing and writing and not, um, you know, there's a thing in uh, books where it's, if it doesn't, if the book doesn't do well, it's the fault of the copy. And if it does do well, it's because it's a good book. <laughs> So there you go. Yeah, there is that thing. There's <laughs> yeah. a whole lot of those things out there in publishing. Yeah. Yes. So one day you say to yourself, I want to be a playwright. And after that, you say to yourself, uh, who do you say that next to? I mean, who well, do you turn to and say, I want to be a playwright after you say it to yourself? Here, I have one of these, in my view, I hope inspirational and certainly oh my God, that really happened, (laughs) stories. I was a person who saw plays a lot. We had a, uh, my parents loved plays. My mother, of course, was a teacher, as so many of our mothers are, or were. Mm -hmm. And my father actually Mm -hmm. was a copywriter for a time, but we lived in Philadelphia, not in New York. And boy, 
was I hungering to get to New York, as was my sister, and um, not so much my brother. So I saw a lot of plays as a kid, even in Philadelphia. We used to come to New York a couple of times a year and see plays. And then I got to move here after college, and I saw a lot, a lot of plays with this boyfriend and that boyfriend and this husband. Now, here's the lesson. Follow your passions. I always Mm. stayed away from writing plays because I thought it's impossible to get a play put on and it's impossible to make your living from it. I'm here to tell you, it is not impossible to get a play put on. I haven't been to Broadway or even off Broadway, but if Mm -hmm. what you want is to write plays and see any kind of audience, any size audience see your play, you can do it. It can be done, and it doesn't matter how old you are. And you are such a fine example of that. And I'm I'm fascinated with the background, the the whole going to the plays, of course. And you also mentioned that you went to a lot of musicals. And I went as a kid. My mother took us down to La Mama Theater, where our little minds got blown. I think it's the first time I saw somebody take their shirt off on live theater. (laughs) I probably was seven. Eye-opening. Oh, oh, yeah. And we went to the Lower East Side, and and I was astonished by Gilbert and Sullivan. So what Uh, about musicals? What did that infuse you with, do you think? Because I think a lot of people have a lot in their background. They just don't know they can draw from it. Well, uh, my family is somewhat musically inclined, and I like to say Mm -hmm. we were living room performers. And we listened to a <laughs> we listened to a lot of musicals. My parents had the musicals of the day, you know, and we would get them out of the library as well. And we sang all the time. Now, this mm. wasn't necessarily the happiest household, and it was a very chaotic household. But when things simmered down, there was singing, <laughs> a lot of singing. <laughs> and uh, we all featured ourselves as good singers. I, I suspect we weren't as good as we thought we were, but, but we sang anyway. And we just loved it. And I know I shouldn't say this to an intellectual crowd, but really... I prefer musicals over opera. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I know I'm middle brow, but there you have it. I I just love Oh, I'm them. decidedly middle brow. <laughs> yes. I'm decidedly middle brow. I, I, I think, and I think it's a good thing to know where you stand. Yeah. And I think mm-hmm. that that's kind of what I was trying to get at is I think a lot of people think musicals are just sort of the lower tier. And yet... The experience of language that is communicated to the back row that sits on top of a note is a lot of communication about how to write, right? And I think there's a great energy and education there in the American musical. I will always believe that. I agree. I agree. And um, that there, Stephen Sondheim, I know it's popular now to adore and praise him. But our family was adoring and praising him in the 70s before many people were. He's just so smart. It's such a joy to hear. There's this great uh, rhyme he does in uh, Sunday in the Park. It's something along the lines of, isn't it rapturous to see how artists capture us? I mean, is that not a great line? (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, and everything you need to know about being a creative is in Finishing the Hat in Sunday yes. in the Park with George yes. in that song. Yes. Everything, I, it's a song I listen to almost every day, really? have for many, many years. Yeah, really? it's, I think it's perfect, and it yes. experiences with you 
the loneliness and solitude of staying in while other people are out. Yeah. It re at least when Mandy Patinkin sings it, it re-inhabits yes. this great <laughs> hollow loneliness. Yes. Um, but it also says, but that I, that I is your ticket. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm a great, huge believer in the musical. I, I'm delighted. I was just delighted to read that about you. And I think that people just don't think they have on them what they need. Yeah. And I say, yeah, you do. Right? Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. I think if you think you're a writer, try writing. You may be a writer. (laughs) (laughs) Is that a t-shirt you think maybe you should be selling on a side gig? Yeah, I like it. I like that. I do a little knitting, too, so maybe I could combine the two. (laughs) Oh, but the, the genesis of my playwriting was... I wrote all kinds of other things. I wrote two novels that I couldn't interest anybody in. I wrote some mm-hmm. kids' books, that, and I don't draw, which is problematic. I mean, I couldn't interest mm-hmm. anybody in. And then mm-hmm. after I lost a job through, you know, publishing mergers, I was talking to my brother, and we were, you know, how we do, mock our mother, who was mm-hmm. still sure. alive at the time. Open and season. we had some, yes, we had, you know, each of us had, hey, remember when she did this? Remember when she did this? And my brother goes, hey, one of us should write about her. And a few mm-hmm. months later, I call him up and I go, I have a act one. And he goes, mm-hmm. act one of what? <laughs> the mommy play. And <sighs> it was then I thought, I can do this. Yes, you she can. certainly was, you, you know. She was a colorful person, yeah. and, that, and that was the cause of my so far one full-length comedy. That is it. We start in our own backyard, and I say this yeah. to people all the time. And you may have started late, but you have an impressive number of plays that have been staged, produced, and Thank aired. You. And your topics, you. you take on the sanctity or not of the eulogy. Mm-hmm. You turn mm-hmm. Hamlet into a detective to solve the problems of others. <laughs> not the first person I would have chosen to take my sure. troubles to. Um, <laughs> you, you could not resist the brief marriage of Rock Hudson. Thank you very no. much. You've yes. written about the COVID lockdown, the Roosevelt created what you called an almost completely false story behind the creation of Roger's Thesaurus. You've got Bernie Madoff playing Canasta with Carlo Ponzi of the Ponzi scheme fame, and you've adapted an O. Henry story to name just a few. So let's start with the idea. Where, when. I get great ideas or mediocre ideas, or I'm so glad I got any ideas at all, while I'm chopping vegetables with the most dangerous knife in my drawer or when I'm driving a car. That's when it mostly comes to me. How about you? Absolutely. Absolutely. I sometimes, I just sit there on my bed with my laptop. My husband has the living room as his office because his real office was too crowded with books for him to work in. So he had to move into the living room. (laughs) And I get the bedroom, which is fine. And I actually like it. And actually for the, for metonym, the almost completely false story behind the creation of Roger's Thesaurus, I sat there and I thought, what is a wacky short play idea? Wacky, Mm. wacky short play. Wacky. It came to my head. Mm. And my play, a more recent uh, play that was uh, performed at the 10 by 10 festival at the Barrington stage was Lizzie Borden Gets Engaged. Yeah, it was. And Oh, that's right. You saw it, of course. And um, (laughs) it's... It's like hard to pin down where ideas come from, but sometimes I just sit there going, what would be an odd thing to write about? 
and with a good title yeah. that is catchy. And oftentimes for the short plays, I come up with the title and then fill in the play. And that seems to work. Fabulous. Often. For the longer plays, of course, it's you know much more heavily outlined, and I think it through, and I go back and forth. But for the short plays, it's it's more of a romp for me. Well, I think a romp is a wonderful word that liberates all of us. And mm. I recently mm-hmm. watched the Ten by Ten New Play Festival on the Barrington of course, stage, yes. and I loved it. And yours was my favorite of the ten. Thank I have you. to say, well said. And it gave me, it, well, it gave me a lot to think about. I mean, lots of women, historical women, get stamped with one word. You know, in mm-hmm. this case, oh, I don't know, murderous, murderous, murderer. And, um, <laughs> and I've seen an opera about her. I saw the recent yeah, indie movie right. about her. I've read books about her. She's been kind of a lifelong obsession, but I have to tell you, I had never considered her dating life before. The comedic side. (laughs) (laughs) So you say that you kind of, you let go with the short ones. What would make a great title? What would be a romp? And I think Lizzie Borden Gets Engaged is a romp. And, but such a welcome romp. I don't know if you're watching the show Dickinson on television where we take on Emily Dickinson. Um, I love it. And it's, I've been begging people, anybody, ever, to just look at Emily differently because I just yeah. think this sort of withered, dressed in white, yeah. spinster yes. thing. It's like, have you read her? Um, yeah, no, right. that's not who she was. So right. they take her on with a, with a sexual appetite and with real relationships. And Interesting. it helps a lot to understand the work. So women, you know, women we know. Another play you choose, women with whom we have some knowledge. You let us listen in on Eleanor and Alice Roosevelt. And they are, as the title includes, friends, cousins, and rivals. And you have them meet at eight crucial moments in their lives. So one's a Democrat, one's a Republican. Mm -hmm. Why did, this is a few years ago, but why did you choose the now of then to put them in front of us? What was going on in the world that you said, these two, right now, let's listen in? In part, it's their difference. In part, it's their absolute difference. They couldn't have disagreed on anything more. Mm. And cousins, I mean, we all don't necessarily get along with our cousins, but is one diametrically opposed to them in every single aspect of life, like Eleanor and Alice were? No, I don't think so. Well, I haven't seen it anyway. And the thing of it is, I actually just, it was on um, this the Urban Stage. Urban Stage in New York did a sort of audio version of it, an abbreviated audio version of it. So it was just two women. We knocked it down to an hour long instead of its natural two hours. And the thing of it is, in American politics, these things never go away. These issues, the, yeah. the victories won are never stay won completely. You know, right. we thought voting rights was taken care of with the 1964 Civil Rights Act. No, you know, the Voting Rights Act. No, apparently it wasn't. Not in Florida and Georgia. Nope. And we have to keep litigating and fighting these things over and over again. It seems ridiculous, but that's the way it is. So some of these topics are like weirdly evergreen. The difference between Mm -hmm. Democrats and Republicans who will spend money for the common wheel and who will not spend it on the common wheel. Who uh, will, can we give cash payments or uh, tax reductions to regular working people? Or do we only do that to corporations and the very, very wealthy. Apparently, these topics will never go away. And so it was, it, it was, so it was for Eleanor and Alice. 
Well, Eleanor and Alice has been performed at a variety of places. It, mm-hmm. it was at the Roosevelt Homestead National Historic Site in New York's right. Hudson Valley, and it was at the Brooklyn Public Library. So let's talk about that a bit. I don't know mm-hmm. if everybody understands that theater, of course, has been performed everywhere before. Suddenly we're saying, oh, we're going outdoors, and oh, yes. we're going on the radio, it, and oh, yes. we're meeting in libraries. <laughs> and is this a good thing to be back everywhere, do you think, in terms of performance? I think it is. I love that there's audio. Um, Zoom. I think it's very hard to watch a play on Zoom. I think it's easier mm-hmm. to listen to it on the radio. Because if mm-hmm. you're watching, your instinct is to want to see scenery and sets and costumes. But if you're on Zoom, of course, you don't get that. And movement. But if you're listening, you fill in all that in your head and you're not distracted by the lack of it. And uh, mm-hmm. good actresses, as I've been lucky enough to have, really sell the uh, audio and you really feel like you are there. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I guess Zoom will last, but I don't know any performer who loves it. And I don't yeah. know. Audio is different. And I don't know any writer who loves it. I don't think you're giving the play it's due on Zoom. Although audio, it's, you know, like old radio. I think you're you're getting right. a lot from that. I think you are. I think you're you're required to bring something that we, mm-hmm. on Zoom we we think is kind of supply, but it's not. I'm not sure we're yeah. experiencing the kind of catharsis that we do yeah. in live theater. Yeah, well um, said, yeah. When it's Zoom, um, I think that when we meet in a room with a bunch of strangers and we watch and listen and process our sort of emotional selves, we get that cleansing or exercise or whatever we mm-hmm. get. And we get that on the radio, but somehow I agree. There's something about the Zoom thing that it's not quite enough, and it's a little bit yeah. too much in the same yes, yes. way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. I, I hadn't figured that out before. I'm glad we. I'm glad we figured that out here. That's yeah, we sorted helpful. it out. <laughs> <laughs> So let's return to this stage for a moment, though. Sure. I've I've only once witnessed a stranger reading something I wrote, and it was in a Greek restaurant in Manhattan when, across the room, I watched someone read a piece I had written. Oh, that must be good. It was wild. But but you kind of know about this. I mean, I suspect the Chinese or the Greeks have a word for this. I do not. There's some fear. (laughs) There's some—it's more complex than just mere confirmation. But it remains a vivid moment for me. So— I've always wanted to ask a playwright this. You're sitting in an audience, your words are being spoken on the stage by actors with whom you've worked, and the people in the audience are laughing in all the right places. What happens to you? I can't explain what a great feeling it is. And when Mm. I was young and of a somewhat performative nature, I thought, you know, as a lot of people do. I wanted to be an actor, but I'm blabby but shy, so this is, it was a conundrum. (laughs) But to hear people laughing at what comes out of your head, and and they're Mm. supposed to be laughing, um, Mm -hmm. it's just like, oh my God, they got it. Oh my God, I am funny. Oh, Oh, this is intelligent writing. It is such a kick and such an affirmation, really, that, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, maybe I kind of know what I'm doing with this. Maybe it is worthy of my time and attention and uh, ambition to do this. It is a terrific, terrific feeling. Oh, I hope so. I, yeah. it, it's one of those things I think I've I've dreamed about almost. It must be very directly uh, satisfying. Yes, it's but- visceral. 
Yes. Mm. Like my mm-hmm. my husband, like you, uh, who's a writer, he once saw somebody reading a book of his on the subway. Is that like the great New York story? And he oh. went up to him and he said, how do you like the book? And the guy said, oh, I like it. And Kevin goes, I wrote it. And he looks at the author photo and goes, ah, you so you did. Yeah. It's a great thing. <laughs> it's a great thing. Yeah. It's a great thing. So I'm uh, reading through your work the, the words dark, comedic, absurd come to mind, which means you might have had a field day during the Trump years when the material was just kind of flying. And I yes. know you wrote On the Couch, which floats yes. the idea of Trump being in therapy with Freud, yes. if only. Yes. So talk yes. to us about being in trying times and using those as places from which to create. A lot of people writing, I think, aren't sure if we're supposed to go under the desk and wait for this to pass, yes. grab it, use it. They feel like, well, oh, I'm writing about it now, but it won't be finished for six months. Or So you've got these short plays that you write and, and produce relatively quickly. They've got them in COVID and you've got them mm-hmm. in Trump with, uh, with Freud. So talk mm-hmm. to us about grabbing and turning it around, using the now and responding. Like, What's that like? And, and let's get into that in terms of the artist's responsibility, too. Well, with Trump, it's a double-edged sword. It was a double-edged sword. I wrote it, I think, in 2017. So he'd already been in for a year or almost a year. And I thought it was hilarious. And I kept laughing and laughing. And there's a sort of absurdist <laughs> quality and and part of it. And we had a woman playing Trump and like with a giant, a huge red uh, tie and like a, a clown fright wig and stuff. And when we showed it at the Emerging Artists Theater, um, I was among the few people who were laughing. It was too soon after the election, and people were just still in pain. And even Mm. though it was showing Trump as an absurd figure, and part of the premise is that he's going to be impeached. You see, I predicted that. Oh, I knew that was going to happen as soon as he was elected. It's like looking at all of his, um, the press secretaries, when Sean Spicer came in, I thought, oh, he won't last. When Scaramucci (laughs) came in, I thought, oh, he won't last. There's some things, some absurdities you can't rightly predict. But the Trump play, I found it hilarious, but other people are just, I thought it was hilarious in its absurdism, and I thought it would be a nice escape just like looking forward to the day when he would be impeached. But people were still in too much pain and they couldn't laugh at it. With the COVID, (laughs) unfortunately, it's gone on for so long. So there was time to write about it. Now, I just Mm -hmm. saw somebody, and I'm sorry, playwright, I don't know your name, um, has written a full-length play about COVID, which mm-hmm. he or she, I think it's a woman, has must have been working on from like day one to get it in mm-hmm. good enough shape 15 months later. Um, mm-hmm. So I didn't, I wonder, I think a lot of these short COVID plays, like I wrote, I guess, two COVID plays, I can't imagine there'll be an audience for them afterwards unless there's some kind of backwards nostalgia for what happened. And I can't, I don't predict that. And I think most people won't want to hear the words COVID-19 for a very long time. I suspect yeah. it'll be like the um, flu was in 1918. You know, I mm-hmm. presume you couldn't have had anything uh, written about the flu 
in, in the 20s even, you know, you would have mm -hmm. had to wait many more decades for that to be something people were willing to listen to. But if you can write short, then you can write things that pertain to the times in which we live. I, mm -hmm. I'll be curious to see how this new full-length play about the pandemic pans out. I also wrote a monologue sort of based in the pandemic, and that already got like a listen to, you know, it was performed and archived in this thing called the Fifth Avenue Theater. And so that, but it's short, it's four minutes, I think. Anything else, mm -hmm. it's going to have to encompass so much more than just COVID. It's going to have to open itself up to other relationships, relationships that were troubled before COVID and then COVID. It's like 9-11 plays. There were a slew of 9-11 plays written, but mm -hmm. I don't think they're performed much now. But it was such a right. traumatic moment. Writers had to write it down. You had to inscribe it. And that's okay um, that they're not performed yeah, now. I mean, I exactly. think what you're, what, you're, what you're positing here is that you help us process it Get it on the page. If you've got an idea, get it on the page. Get it down. Use a form like the short play, the monologue that can be performed, that can go out there. You know, you're contributing to the conversation is what I try to tell people that I work with. And don't start thinking about posterity. Yes. You know, don't necessarily start thinking about posterity. How about we just try to contribute to the conversation that we're having right now? Yeah. That's well put. I think there's a danger for all writers to think, well, well, how will this play in 20 years? Don't worry. Don't don't worry about 20 years. Who knows what will happen in 20 years? Who knows what will happen in two years? Yeah, write your play, right. write your memoir now, for, in the now, as, as it occurs to you now and as you're feeling it now. That's good enough, you know. Yeah, I think so. And it's, what seems fascinating to me is uh, people say, oh, you know, magazines are closing, newspapers don't run mm. essays anymore, blah, blah, blah. And mm. I always say, no, actually, this is the best time in the history of the world mm. to get published, to get something out there. And when I went online and I was looking around about how one finds a play, I found NPX, the National Pl New Play yes. Network. And if I'm reading this right, it's a menu of playwrights and their plays. So is this how the world works right now? Do you do we go looking for a playwright or a topic online for a theater or a radio spot or a festival? Is that how somebody finds you and says, oh, I need a monologue on this? Or how, how is it that it works once you've got the work up and running? And, and how do we locate you? In part, MPX is an exceedingly a good source. I just got contacted a few weeks ago through NPX, a play I have, the metonym play about the Roger's Thesaurus, mm -hmm. and it's going to be performed next week in Fairfield, Connecticut, and Cos Cobb. And so the people are getting opportunities that way. And there is another yeah. group called Playwright Center. Like, NPX has a subscription, but it's not much. It's a monthly subscription of maybe six or seven dollars a month. There's another thing called Playwright Center, also subscription, but also of a similar price. It's not too much money. And they post submissions. MPX, mm -hmm. you post your plays. Sometimes they post submission opportunities. Playwright Center is not only post submission opportunities, they, you can do online classes and they have online um, uh, opportunities. Um, they have... All kinds of things. They have uh, suggestions. They have all kinds of things. And there's another group called, I think it's exclusively for New Yorkers. It's called nycplaywrights.org or it might be .com, but I think it's .org. 
These are three great submission places. MPX is more or less mm -hmm. like a holding place that you can get submission opportunities from. The other two are exclusively submission opportunities and with a Playwrights Center, PWC, other things as well. And you can join online groups. There's a group I belong to. I don't know what their official name is. They call themselves bingers. Twice a year... Playwrights binge, maybe that's it. Twice a year in March and September, they take 30 days. Everybody is can, you don't have to, and it costs nothing. You submit, you sort of make a deal with yourself to submit a pl at least one play every day for 30 days. No, I don't submit a play every day for 30 wow. days. But what they do is they, all the individuals, send to the members of the group submission opportunities that they've routed out somehow. Some are submission opportunities you have discovered mm -hmm. on your own, but not all. And some are just things that aren't appropriate for your writing or what you're doing. And so you don't have to submit to that. The downside of right. it is that these places are then getting inundated by all the people on the playwrights binge who are submitting in those two months. But people get hits from them. And people and people report sure. back, you know, oh, I got a I got a binge hit. You know, this place in Florida is doing my play. This, you know, radio thing is doing my play. And another thing that I highly recommend, though I poo-pooed it for many a year, uh, writing groups. I poo-pooed it for many a year uh -huh. because when I went to graduate school and got my MA in creative writing, and I wasn't a playwright yet, I was writing short stories and uh, a novel. If you can find yourself a good group, and in New York, they're, right now they're, everybody's on Zoom, but I suspect every area has a playwriting group that you can be a part of. I never believed mm -hmm. it until recently, but when you hear your play read out loud, it actually, not as a performance, just as a reading, as a casual reading in a small group or a large group of people, it actually does help you hear it and when people comment, sometimes their comments are asinine and idiotic, but not all of them are, and some of them will, like, <laughs> resonate with you. And, oh, yeah, that's right. They're right about that. Yeah. Like, something you didn't realize that you were thinking about it, and then it highlights it to you. Yeah, that is stupid. Oh, that should be different. Oh, I didn't make that connection. It makes a difference. And, you know, when I was in graduate school... You know, one or two people were exceedingly good at critiquing plays, and the rest were, yeah, okay. And this is the truth of any <laughs> writing group. Some people, you will like what they have to say. Mm -hmm. Some people, your voice won't match with what they want to hear. But, you know, it's part of being, you know, a big girl and, you know, taking what you can from it and eschewing what doesn't work for you. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, these are really great pieces of advice. You're talking about community. You're talking about finding this calls for submissions online. Mm -hmm. You're talking about finding alternative spaces that, you know, we didn't, we thought everything had to be on a stage. Right. And I have to say, you're, you're, I, 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 I'm almost ashamed that I've been terribly glib about this mm -hmm. for years, having met just one too many brain surgeons who tell me that when they retire, they're going to become uh, a writer. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not very nice to them. Good I usually you. say, well, you know, when I retire, I'm going to become a brain surgeon. Exactly. Exactly. And then I just kind of smile and walk away. Exactly. But you've made me feel a lot more generous. Oh. <laughs> and so as we wrap this up, I just wonder if there's anything else you would say to people who have this play idea on them and they would like 
to start it. And they're chopping vegetables with their most expensive German knife. <laughs> and they've got someone in the other room maybe to call out to and say, what if Lizzie Borden gets engaged? <laughs> yes. And that person says, Ellen Abrams already did that play. But keep thinking, honey. You know, what? anything else that you would like to toss out as advice for everybody before we go? When you have an idea, take a walk or chop vegetables, mm. because as you, you move away from your computer, things pop into your head. It doesn't happen every time I take a walk, but it happens sometimes. I'm working on a play and I'm or stuck or something like that. Take a walk. Something will click in. Mm. Or chop vegetables. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Ellen. My pleasure. Thank I'm you so, so much. I'm so grateful for you. I'm grateful for you, Marion. Thank, thank you, you thank so much. You. It was a joy. <laughs> the writer is Ellen Abrams. I'm Marion Roach-Smith, and you've been listening to QWERTY. QWERTY is produced by Overit Studios in Albany, New York. Reach them at overitstudios.com. Our producer is Adam Claremont. Our assistant is Lorna Bailey. Want more on the art and work of writing? Visit marionroach.com and take a class with me on how to write memoir. And thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to QWERTY and listen wherever you go. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a starred review. It helps others to find their way to their writing lives. 